Trump is pulling between five and 10,000 people, you know, to Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania. And to understand why is a big question in, in American politics right now. We hear today from veteran New York Times reporter Mike Bender, formerly with The Wall Street Journal and with other publications across the land as he tracks the midterms in key state after key state across America. He talks in particular about Arizona, where the Republican contender for governor is showing not just the resonance of message, but the power of performance. Here from Ballard Studios, it's 13th and Park. The future doesn't belong to the faint party. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. We will make America strong again. We will get through this together. I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We're pleased to be joined today by Michael Bender. He's a political correspondent for the New York Times and the author of Frankly, We Did Win This Election, The Inside Story of How Trump Lost. He joined the New York Times in 2022 from the Wall Street Journal, where he was senior White House reporter. Michael spent the first 15 years of his career at newspapers in Ohio, Colorado, and Florida. He's a Cleveland native and a graduate of The Ohio State University. He lives in Washington with his wife and two daughters, and his wife, Ashley Parker, is the White House reporter for The Washington Post. Michael, great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Hey, good to see you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, your book, obviously, we have to talk about your book. It's been very successful in New York Times bestseller. You know, there have been a lot of books written about the presidency of Donald Trump. Uh, you, you focused on the 2020 election, which took place during a pandemic. We had a very interesting Democratic uh, primary. Joe Biden lost the first three primaries and becomes the nominee of the party. Uh, really interesting time. But from that, all the reporting you did for that book and the writing on the book, I- I'm curious, like, what about, after you finished writing it, what about mm-hmm. the 2020 election did you feel was the most typical of that year, emblematic of what happened that year, and especially with how President Trump ran his re-election and lost his re-election campaign? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm happy to talk about the book, which is out in paperback just this last month at all the fine booksellers, including those in Tallahassee. And my book kind of walks through, I think what I what I tried to do, you know, there's a pantheon of Trump books, right? I mean, you can fill an entire library with the number <laughs> of books that have been written about Donald Trump over over the course of his uh, 70 plus years, right? I think what sets mine apart from, I think all of those is, is as I try to do three things. I went and behind the scenes in the White House that last year in office, mine was the first one to kind of like flush out the, the pushback from Trump's generals. It goes under the hood of that re-election campaign, right? A campaign that spent twice as much as it did in 2016 to a very different result and try to unpack some of those reasons why. And a, and a big piece of that, I think, is, uh, I mean, they were rebuilding that campaign in the final in the final months, in the final couple of months of that race, almost from scratch. Um, you know, the digital operation was was stripped down to its studs and, and the messaging uh, was kind of all over the place for those last few weeks. And then finally, what I did, the, the sort of third leg of the stool that in the book is, is that is the Trump supporters and how I sort of uh, illustrated this was I effectively embedded with a group of rally goers. These are the, who called themselves the front row Joes. These are the folks who go to 40, 50, 60 rallies or had at that point in 2020, it's, it's higher now 
to kind of understand them as people and, and, and understand why they kept going, coming back to the show, which it is, a, you know, it's somewhere, you know, a Trump rally, which like I will have to acknowledge for your listeners. I've also been to 40, 50, 60 rallies myself. You know, there's somewhere between a, you know, a, a tent revival and a, and a Rolling Stones concert. <laughs> um, and they bring that kind of energy. And uh, I, I spent a lot of times with these folks trying to figure out why they wanted to keep coming back to see the same show over and over again, what it was about Trump, what it was about them. And, you know, I, I think that question is still relevant now. It's still important now to understand as Trump is pulling between five and 10,000 people, you know, to Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania, despite, you know, getting impeached a second time, right? I mean, uh, ha- having some very clear connections to the January 6th riots, to you know, the multiple investigations, however you want to characterize them. Mm-hmm. He's still drawing huge crowds. And to understand why is a big question in, in American politics right now. Yeah, and I even saw in a recent poll, he's leading Joe Biden in a head-to-head matchup by two points within the margin of error for the 2024 election. So, you know, first of all, I think since you've talked about front row Joes and you've been to 50 of these rallies, you are now a front row Joe. You might not <laughs> you might not like that, but you're now associate. Um, oh, no, no, no. I, yeah, I'm definitely an honorary. I, I, you're yeah, an honorary I, member. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're writing a lot obviously about the midterms now. I want to focus mm-hmm. on, on one article in particular you wrote recently about the deliberations within the Trump team about mm-hmm. whether or not to invest in television and or digital ads behind some of the target U.S. Senate races, uh, specifically, I think, in Georgia and Pennsylvania. Understanding, as you do, that fair or not, this midterm election is in some fashion a referendum on the former president, especially those mm-hmm. who he mightily supported in the primary. Where do you think where do you think that decision may go? And what must they be thinking about in weighing the pros and cons of the former president weighing in with that kind of financial muscle, uh, perhaps to make a, a telling difference in the last furlong of those races? Yeah, just like, I mean, it's it just sort of indicative of what a fascinating midterm election year this is. That the, the idea that this could be a referendum on a former president is pretty wild. And to say nothing of the actual referendum on the current president, which exactly. these things usually are, and even then, it might not, you know, even then, voters are weighing like inflation and abortion, right? It's sort of nothing to do in the moment with either of those two men. So there's a lot of dynamics happening right now. And I feel like, I mean, to sort of like answer a different question is like, I just hearing a lot of befuddlement from, from strategists on both sides about what this election is going to look like and, you know, what winning coalitions might be and, and who's going to come out. So I, I, I can't, I can't wait for this to, you know, these, these last, this last month to unfold. And particularly when you have Trump, I mean, to throw into that now, Trump is going to spend money. I mean, right. What? Right. Trump is like Donald J. Trump is going to get off his wallet and, and start, you know, helping some of these campaigns financially. I mean, that's been unheard of. Right. But I think a, a couple of things is, is there is a lot of pressure on him to do that. Uh, in one sense, the Rick Scott's group, National Republican Senatorial Committee, the Senate Leadership Fund. I mean, these groups exist specifically to win the Senate majority. It's mm-hmm. their responsibility to go out and win these races. But on the other hand, uh, Donald Trump has bears a lot of responsibility here for the people that he pushed to the forefront in these races. These are, in a lot of cases, his candidates. It's unquestionably his party. And when you have Senate campaigns, uh, in battleground races, right, uh, saying Trump rally is helpful. What's more helpful is money. We're, we need money. We need mm-hmm. financial help right now. You know, I think there's. I think that finally pushed Trump over the edge to agree to spend. Now that said, 
I thought we were going to hear something on Monday of this week about where they're going to be spending. The the super PAC group just got filed, I think, last Monday night. And you guys know, I mean, if they get ads placed on Tuesday, it might not be until Wednesday or it might not be until Thursday, Friday, Saturday, until they're on air. You know, we're in the we're in the last month of the race here. So we had uh, Larry Sabato on the show uh, Mm -hmm. recently and with his crystal ball. Can't, can't, re- yeah. can't resist someone making prognostications, yeah, right? He said, basically, it's, a, it's down to two races uh, as of, I think it was two weeks ago, which were Nevada and Georgia. He was almost mm-hmm. conceding lean Democrat in Pennsylvania and Arizona. That could change. But, so that's why the yeah. Georgia race in particular becomes really essential. Not just uh, the Republicans want to regain uh, control in the Senate. But you may argue uh, for, the, for the former president to show that you know, his uh, blessing, his endorsement, and his support, financial and otherwise, still has a lot of bearing on winners and losers. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you know, I, I'm, one of the things I'm doing today is trying to figure out how the news from Monday night about Herschel Walker's, that, that Herschel Walker allegedly paid for an abortion. Huge, wild news uh, in that race. It, you know, is that going to affect you know, how much Trump is willing to spend on that race? You know, I think a lot of still moving parts on that race as well. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that that feels right that the Senate itself, you know, is going to come down to those two states. And uh, there's some regional issues here, too. I mean, I, I wonder if there, it, also we're going to see not necessarily a national election or a national wave for Republicans or the way we would see in a mid, this midterm year, but more of a regional That's regional waves and regional reactions to how abortion plays in the Northeast versus the South and, and what happens out West. You know, something to keep an eye on. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting because there's there's we always try to connect all these dots and try to find trends and things like that. But at the same time, candidates matter. <laughs> candidates matter a lot, and uh, that makes a big difference in the campaigns they run and how they perform as a candidate. So you've covered Trump. You wrote about his uh, mm-hmm. his 2020 election. You've also written recently quite a bit about Kerry Lake and Ron DeSantis. So mm-hmm. a lot of people want to know whether Trump's going to run for president in 2024. We obviously don't know the answer to that. But even if Trump doesn't run, Trumpism is still alive uh, in America yeah. with or without out Donald Trump. And some people would say that uh, Ron DeSantis and Carrie Lake are examples of that. So what what can you share based on your reporting? What And you, you followed the front row, Joes. Uh, why mm-hmm. is Trumpism um, sustaining itself in the American political system? How would you explain it? And are there any examples from DeSantis or Lake that might demonstrate that? Just the existence of DeSantis and Carrie Lake and, and the positions both of them hold right now are indicative of, of sort of the state of Trumpism. DeSantis, obviously, you know, every step of the way has kind of outperformed where you may have had him. I mean, even, you know, it was before Trump, but that house race uh, was a five-way or six-way race. Right. Where he's running, I think it wasn't, there, there was a sitting state house member in that race too. DeSantis you know, outperformed them all. You know, I was in Florida for, for reporting for a long time. I know probably you guys would like to forget some of that era when I was down there, but I mean, it watched Adam Putman build all the building blocks of the way you're supposed to win, you know, win the governor's office in, in the Jeb Bush Republican era of Florida. And the fact that he was able to, you know, run that race basically on Fox News and, and overcome that. I mean, I know I'm shorthanding that and probably don't need to spend a lot of time talking about that race with you guys. But, um, and then you look at someone like Carrie Lake, who, 
you know, I, I do think like this idea of like mini Trumps is a little bit cliche and a little bit overdone, but man, spend some time with her out on the campaign trail out in, in Phoenix. She is, uh, she's the real deal. I mean, she is really something to see on stage. Right. And uh, certainly, uh, I mean, similar to Trump, a lot of that comes from her decades on television as a new, as a news anchor in that, in that metro area. But she's, she connects with people and, and digs in and is just un, unapologetic about it and really has the crowds in the palm of her hand. I mean, I went, one of the events I went to is, um, it was called MAGAFest. And it was her and, and the whole slate of Trump endorses out there, including Blake Masters, and then along with some other, uh, you know, faces from Trump world, uh, Rick Grinnell, Tash Patel, and crowd applauded them all, except when Carrie Lake came out. I mean, they were there. They were there to see Carrie Lake hmm. fight everyone else on that in that in part of that lineup. And uh, it was pretty convincing. But what is it about? Is it her own personal charisma or is there an issue set that she is particularly adept at articulating? I don't know that it's. I think it's really her her performance right now, right? And I mean, she's jumped on a lot of Trumpian issues. I mean, she has um, leaned into the false claims about the 2020 election as hard, harder than anyone that we've seen in the in the 2020 midterms. I mean, part of her platform is to get rid of all electronic voting in the state, uh, you know, electronic counting. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wants everything in paper. You know, Arizona Republicans, not unlike Florida Republicans, have spent generations getting their supporters to vote by mail, getting them to turn out early, right? Chasing ballots. I mean, those are, you know, for good reason. And in the course of an election cycle, I mean, at her event, she said, show up on election day. Don't, you know, don't go, don't mail your ballot in. Don't do these early polls. Come out on election day. And I'm going to get the numbers here a little wrong, but election night, she was down three or four points. When all the votes were counted, she was up three or four points. I mean, yeah. in the course of an election cycle, after the, the party spent decades getting their training their voters to vote early, she got all of her supporters to show up on election day. I mean, it's she, like that kind of resonance. You know, she's she, and she's a she's a TV anchor. I mean, I don't say that pejoratively either. I mean, I have a great respect for uh, journalists of all uh, all walks of life, but she's not she's not trained in the issues or or steeped in the issues like. You know, like a Jeb Bush or an Adam Putman or someone who, you know, spent, you know, their their formative years, you know, in, in, on the battle lines of conservative thought. Okay, so Mike, I got to ask the question. Mm-hmm. You work for the New York Times. Your wife mm-hmm. uh, Ashley works uh, as a White House correspondent for the Washington mm-hmm. Post. She's a summa cum laude graduate from the University of Pennsylvania. You, of course, come from the Ohio State <laughs> University. Just to make sure we get every, all the credits in there. So, who gets the scoop? So the two of you are talking yeah. at night. She's from and- Ivy. I'm from a state school. You made your point. Okay. <laughs> so, so who, now this is a very political answer, of course, Mike, for you, uh, yeah. as it relates to, to Ashley. You talk a lot about all these current events. Is there ever a sense of, you know, gosh, she, I think she's on a, a good bead here and she's going to get that story. Is there ever a sense of you're kind of in the same space and how do you deal with that as a reporter and as a husband? <sighs> Yeah. How long do we have? <laughs> it's great. I mean, I, we met when we were both covering Jeb Bush's presidential campaign. We uh, got married when uh, Trump was in office. The quick story about that is uh, it was on Air Force One. Someone told Trump that we were getting married on the same day, on the same day, calendar day that he had announced um, his presidential campaign wow. in 2015. So he turned to Ashley and said, oh, you, uh, uh, you did that on purpose? <laughs> you know, you're doing that on purpose. And, and she said, well, it's a, it's a very important day. That's true. And he said, yeah, but 
but you're doing that on purpose, right? And he gave her a, he gave her a Sharpie with his name on it. Um, but, uh, so my point being like, you know, we, we, we've been, we've been competing against each other for a long time. I will say in the Trump white house, uh, there was so much news yeah, uh, happening on a given, a given day. And at the time I was at the wall street journal, uh, which covered the Trump administration just differently enough from the Washington post that there was usually more than enough news to go around. And we weren't normally on the same stories, but there were times when we were, and you know, you list off Ashley's credentials there. I was on the short end of that stick more than times than I would like to admit. And uh, more times than I will, will admit to my editors. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about one, one time in particular, we were, we were both chasing um, Rex Tillerson. Uh, I remember she walked in the house that night and she looked at me and said, I have to work tonight. So I'm just going to go upstairs and, mm-hmm. and make some calls. And I looked at her and said, well, I have to work tonight. So <laughs> I'm going to stay downstairs and make some calls. And that story ends with, uh, with her in Sarah Sanders' office at the White House. And Sarah Sanders is the press secretary at the time saying, are you going to post the story? Are you going to post the story? You have to go now. You have to go now. My phone phone is blowing up. I can't get rid of this reporter. Like, I can't hold him off for too long. And she says, well, who the hell is that blowing you up? And she's looked at her and said, well, it's your husband. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. Wow. Okay. I, what a story. Mike, you just passed the spousal test. You did very well there with that. <laughs> that w- w- well done. I'm um, very lucky. I'm very, I, I feel very lucky. Yeah, she's a, she's a, a great partner, a great editor, a great friend yeah that's that's wonderful and thanks for sharing that uh, personal anecdote uh final mm-hmm. question then we're going to wrap up yeah. is you know you've been a journalist for many many years work with the top uh, news organizations in the country what's changed mm-hmm. in your in the job of reporting and is it changed for the better or for the worse in the time that you've been a journalist well you know i've had a I, i've i've had some you know success going from outlet to outlet so i'm going to say the new york times is better for, uh, for, for hiring me. Smart move. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's different, you know? I mean, I graduated Ohio State in 2000, which uh, doesn't feel as long ago as it was, but it really was. A, it, I was kind of like the last, I think, of a generation of journalists who, you know, my first job, uh, full-time job, was the Grand Junction Daily Sentinel in Western Colorado. Hmm. into a 30,000 circulation paper and covered county government and local politics before doing state politics and coming on to Florida uh, the Palm Beach Post and St. Pete Times, Tampa, which became the Tampa Bay Times while I was there. I, I, I didn't know anything. I mean, I had done college paper, the college paper and an internship and stuff, but I, I learned so much in, in being able to do all the different things and write about, the most important lesson for me was writing about people who had to, I had to be accountable to the next day, who I would see, you know, in the community, um, at the bank or in the, in the grocery store or at the, at the county commission desk the next morning and be able to look in the eye and tell them why I wrote about why I wrote what I did or why, you know, made that decision. And, and, uh, you know, accountability that I don't think is necessarily inherent when you're writing for, you know, some of the, you know, web-based startups that, you know, that are, mm-hmm. are kind of uh, the starting ground in a lot of ways today. And I, it, that was invaluable to me, but I don't know that I could look someone in the eye and tell them, you know, a 20 year old coming out of Florida state or uh, university of Florida and, and, and tell them to take that job in Grand Junction or right. whatever, Cincinnati Inquirer or something like that. You know, I think I would, I think it, it's a job you do because you love it and and you want to do it. So like I would, you know, uh, tell people now, like go where you want to be. If you want to, you know, if you want to be out West, if you want to be in the city, if you want to be up Northeast or in Florida, go somewhere where you, where, where you enjoy and then what the, uh, and, and want to be and, and, and the rest will come with it. You know, how, we learn that accountability in this profession and how we teach it. And, and I think is that that's a, that, that's a big change, you know, in the 20, 24, 25 years I've been 
I've been doing this now. That's uh, great. I want to close this by saying best-selling author, reporter for the New York Times, an honorary member of the Front Row Joes. <laughs> I think we've now established that. And a tremendous uh, skilled husband as he addressed his relationship with his uh, spouse, Ashley. Thank you so much for joining us. Godspeed in the midterms. Uh, we look forward to reading your insights moving ahead. Yeah, no, I appreciate you guys having on. This is great. It was really fun. Good to talk politics with you. And I, I won't, uh, and I even upset you had Caputo on uh, before you had me. So, uh, uh. Well, yeah, thanks for not holding that against us. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> thanks, thanks again. Okay. Thanks again, Mike. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care. He's in a very interesting place. I mean, he's worked in, in all sorts of media outlets in Florida, Daytona, uh, across the country, and now, of course, more recently, uh, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. A great insight, not just on the former president, but on the whole process of politics. It's important that we have people that report on things like that that know what they're talking about. Whether you agree with what they write or not— it's seasoned, and I think that's important that we, we got a taste of that today. It is, and I was fascinated by the fact that he embedded with uh, the Front Row Joes. Yeah, uh, right. He basically wanted to you know, look at them and follow them around and go with them to the Trump rallies and try to understand why do they go. And that, I think that's a it's a really important uh, reporting that he's done because there's still, even he even said, there's still a lot of uh, question amongst political experts about what's going to happen this year in the midterm right. election. And I think that— you know, I asked him the question about Trumpism and Trump, and I still think that it's still a, a largely uh, mysterious phenomenon mm -hmm. that uh, people aren't really sure. And some of the smartest political scientists and mm -hmm. uh, the pundits, uh, it, it's an X factor, I call it, in the American political system right now, where it's not a traditional analysis that you can apply to our political system because of Trumpism. When he talked about the, the uh, gubernatorial contender in, in Arizona, right. uh, and how powerful she is as a communicator. That's really what he's saying. Mm -hmm. From her media background, you know, that makes it a little bit easier. That's one of the missing stories here. Because I would even go back to 21 in Virginia. When Glenn Youngkin, I thought, was a tremendous communicator. Uh, there's something about him that felt real and natural. And I think that was a big part of his success in winning that election. I think that uh, Lake in Arizona... Uh, is treading on the same ground. And if she's inspiring crowds, you know, when you want to take a poll, do you want a regular poll or do you want a poll of people who with our hearts, minds, and feet show up and are just absolutely mesmerized by someone in public life? That's the poll I look for. Obviously, that's the poll she's doing very well in. And if you look at the, the push at the end in a purple state, I say it's now a purple state of Arizona, you have to feel that she's got a great shot. And she may be the lead vanguard, part of the lead vanguard of the Trumpism movement, you might say, in a different person moving forward. Right. And what's fascinating about this, too, and it just occurred to me that she had a career in television. Donald Trump had a career in television, right. had one of the most popular shows on television with The Apprentice. And if you look at some of the other Trump candidates in this election, you have Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, who was known for his television exactly. show. And you have Herschel Walker, while he didn't have a, a television show, he's running for Senate in Georgia. He has the celebrity factor. He was on television on a show called College Football. Right. Um, and so it's kind of fascinating to see some of these uh, Trump candidates uh, who are who have that 
background in television or celebrity, then kind of transitioning over into which uh, into politics, which gives them they've got that experience, they have that charisma, and they have that following from their time on television. So I think that was fascinating. But the the story that he told about uh, he, he and his wife Ashley on Air Force One competing, right. for, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Compete, well, one the the president saying right. that they 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 picked their wedding day, but then the second one at, at the same day that he announced for president, but the other one was that they were both competing for the same story yes. and they were both beating up Sarah Sanders yes. not beating her up but they were right. on her to, to 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 break the news to them was uh was just I'd never heard that story before that was uh, that was enlightening Thank you for joining us uh, for another episode on 13th and Park it's uh it's always interesting the guests themselves really have illuminated and informed and inspired us uh to keep going this is our second uh, series our eighth episode actually uh, today and we're almost to 10 I'm counting yeah we got more good episodes to come and thanks for listening Mm -hmm.